My all-time favorite rock and roll song is called New Kid in Town by the Eagles. I'm not going to sing it for you, although I kind of want to. But here's a little bit of how it goes. Uh, as the song begins, there's talk on the street. It sounds so familiar. Great expectations. Everybody's watching you. The people you meet, they all seem to know you. And even your old friends treat you like you're something new. Johnny come lately, the new kid in town. Everybody loves you, so don't let them down. Now, the Eagles wrote that song as a reflection on their own success. They had become hugely popular, but they knew how fleeting it could all be. People can turn their backs on you just as quickly as they came. Well, y'all, as we conclude John chapter 2 today, we find Jesus, in some sense, at his first crossroads in ministry. Jesus is certainly, at this point, he's the new kid in town. John the Baptist has pumped him up. To anyone who will listen, John was saying, this is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. He's compelling people to turn to Jesus. And then what we saw last week, Jesus performs his first miracle. He turns water into wine. Now, news didn't travel as fast back then as it does now. But we, we're safe to assume that the reviews of Jesus early on would have been overwhelmingly positive. At the very least, he was intriguing. People would have wanted to be around him. And certainly if they're hearing about his power, I mean, think about the disciples. They just witnessed the water into wine. They have to be excited. What's Jesus going to do next? What's he going to do for an encore? Well, what Jesus does next is actually quite the departure. Uh, we get a very different tone today from what we saw at the wedding feast. What Jesus does now is truly a great risk, a risk to his own reputation, to his credibility, and his ministry. He puts himself on the line in a significant way today. So last week we saw at the wedding, he was the life of the party. And this week, uh, not so much, not so much. So look with me at John chapter 2. We begin in verse 12. Verse 12 kind of serves as a bridge verse between the two accounts. After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And now we get into the next account, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And within the temple grounds, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away from here. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So what's happening here? Jesus goes with his disciples to Jerusalem for the Passover, the greatest of all the Jewish feasts. Y'all, Passover was inaugurated by God right after he rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. It was the celebration of God's redemption. 
And Passover was also the anticipation for God's ultimate salvation. They were looking back to what God had done and also looking ahead and praying for what was yet to come. And so the Jewish people, uh, this was of absolute uh, importance and seriousness to them. They came from all over the place to gather into Jerusalem, to worship in the temple, and to make sacrifices. And verse 14 tells us that within the temple grounds, Jesus found people selling animals and other people exchanging money. Now, in one sense, that was all very normal and necessary. Uh, Think about for the people who had come from long distances, who couldn't travel with all of their livestock, uh, they would be able to purchase animals for the sacrifice there. So it was a matter of, of convenience. It was removing a certain level of burden from the people who came from long distances. There's nothing wrong with that. And then the money changers, they were there to exchange currency because as people came to pay the temple tax, the different coins from the surrounding uh, uh, you know, areas, people used different currency, but it would all be con- need to be converted into a special silver coin that was known as Tyrian currency that was unique to the temple. And so this was, y'all, in some sense, this was business as usual, what's happening here. Uh, It's not obvious and apparent to everybody walking around that something sinful is going on. They didn't see anything wrong with it, but Jesus did. Jesus did. He makes a whip of cords, and he drives them all out of the temple area along with the sheep and the oxen. Now, as fun as it is to imagine Jesus as Indiana Jones here, we shouldn't think of the whip like that. Uh, The whip of cords, almost certainly Jesus is using that to get the livestock moving, not to whip people into submission. I'm sorry if I ruined that image for you, but uh, he's not abusing people physically here. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away from here. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Now Now let's state the obvious. This is one of the sharpest pictures of anger that we ever see in Jesus. He is undeniably angry. And so let me make a quick note on this. Because we may see anger here as contradictory to righteousness. Y'all, there is a certain kind of anger that is sinful. And we know because we've all done it and the Bible affirms it. Most of what human anger is, is Sinful. That's why James says the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. But there is a kind of anger that is righteous. And what we see here in Jesus is a righteous anger because he's angry at sin. He's angry over injustice. And so I say this again, we shouldn't picture Jesus in this moment flying off the handle in an abusive way, losing control of his anger as sometimes we humans do. No, the perfect son of God is not out of control abusive here. But he's also not standing under a rainbow with puppies in his arms. He's angry and he's rightly angry. He will not turn a blind eye to what's happening in the temple grounds. 
And so what is happening? Because I just mentioned a moment ago that what's going on, this, the buying and selling, the exchanging, was not necessarily abnormal or wrong in itself. Well, John doesn't tell us directly why Jesus is so mad about what's happening, but there are two likely reasons, at least two, that we can, can gather here. Um, it's very likely that when Jesus drives these people out of the temple courts, he's breaking up a money-making scheme. He's breaking up a for-profit business. Um, it's likely that the merchants who were selling the animals were selling them at a premium because they knew they could. They knew that people had to have animals for sacrifice and so they could charge whatever they wanted. And it's likely also that the money changers were inflating the exchange rate so that they could pocket the difference for themselves. Now I say it's likely because when we see the, the cleansing of the temple in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all three tell us that Jesus says, you have made my house into a den of robbers. There's robbery going on here, and it's unjust. But it's not just what they're doing for their own financial gain. It's where they're doing it. You know, th there was a time when this buying and selling and exchanging took place outside of the city of Jerusalem, outside the city. But at a certain point, it was moved from outside the gates into the temple courts. And, and specifically, this is happening in what was called the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles, the outer courts of the temple, which were reserved for non-Israelites to be able to come and pray. And so the outer courts existed as a signal of God's grace for all the nations, not only his people, the Jews. And so what the temple courts represented is something very different than what they had now become. No longer were the courts a place for the outsider to come and encounter God's mercy, but they were an irreverent, noisy, stinky marketplace frankly, designed for the convenience of the insiders. How much more convenient it was for the Jews to simply do their business right there in the temple courts rather than outside the city, even if that meant squeezing the Gentiles out of their assigned place to come and pray. Y'all, that made Jesus furious. And I hope we can see why. He was beside himself. Because it's written, and John tells us, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, I want to hold on to that quotation. That's from a psalm. We're going to hold on to that. It'll come back around in a minute. But we have the action that's just taken place. Now we get the fallout. You had to know there was going to be a fallout here. Look at verse 18. The Jews then said to Jesus... What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Now, interesting. Rather than the Jews being convicted of their sin, they're just appalled at Jesus' behavior. They totally miss what he's intending to show them. They should be uh, consumed with guilt for the abuse that they have perpetrated in the temple courts, and instead all they can think is, who does this man think he is? Right. They've missed the point. 
And so they say to him, what, what sign, what miracle are you going to show us to prove that you have the authority to do what you've done? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and yet you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So the Jews here ask for a sign so that Jesus may prove his authority, and Jesus does not give them one, at least not directly. You know, Jesus would never perform a miracle simply as a show of power, simply as something that would impress people or grant him credentials in the eyes of man. Jesus would never, he never did do that, and he never would do that because that would itself be an abuse of divine power. But he does offer them a sign. He says to them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Now, obviously, the Jews do not understand what he means. The disciples don't understand what he means. Only much later, after his resurrection, would the disciples come to recognize through the guidance of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was talking about his own body being destroyed and raised. But y'all, right here, Jesus is giving us yet another amazing connection. We've seen as we've walked through John, we're only in chapter 2, but time after time, John makes connections to who Jesus is as, it correlate, as he correlates to God, that Jesus is God, God come in the flesh. And, and Jesus, as, as he relates to uh, all manner of precious realities, creation, the Passover, uh, the, the reign of the Messiah in, in turning water into wine, right? And here's another one, another great connection. Notice what Jesus says about the temple being his body. Y'all, the temple, the building, the temple, was to the Jews the centerpiece of God's presence on the earth. It was the most important place in the world. It was the place of God's dwelling and God's glory. It was the focal point of communion between God and the people. That's what the temple was. It was the place where sacrifices were made for the atonement of sins. It was the most precious place in the world to the people of God. And so imagine how shocking and how awful the thought would be of the temple being destroyed. The most deflating and terrible thought that could enter into their minds. And you know what? It's something that had already been done once. The Babylonians did it. And it's something that would be done again about 40 years after the telling of this account when the Romans did it in AD 70. So the Jews knew the preciousness of the temple and the pain of, of destruction. And so when Jesus says, destroy this temple, we can safely imagine an audible gasp from the crowd. How could you even mention something like that? But Jesus knew what he was doing. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus is again declaring to us his purpose as the one who will be crucified. He will be destroyed himself and then raised again 
on the third day, he's making an explicit, at least for those who can understand it, an explicit reference to his own death and resurrection here. And now think about the connection he's intending for us to see. We mentioned a moment ago what the temple building was that Jesus says now truly is being fulfilled in me, in Christ. He, Jesus, is the centerpiece of God's presence on the earth. Jesus is God himself dwelling among the people, not a building. He is the manifestation of God's glory, not a building. Jesus is the focal point of our communion with God. See, all of these new realities, Jesus says, they're no longer found in a place, and in in truth, they never really were. Only in shadows, only in, in, um, uh, as uh, as an example, a copy, but not the real thing. No, now the real thing has come because your communion with God is going to take place not in a building, but in a person. And ultimately that's true because Jesus himself is the atoning sacrifice for sin. Not a sacrifice that the people continually provide year after year, but a sacrifice which God himself provides for the people once and for all. Jesus is the sacrifice. What the temple represented, Jesus has come to fulfill. And that's why John gives us this quote. He says, the disciples remembered something from Psalm 69 as it pertains to Jesus, something David wrote, but ultimately Jesus fulfills. Zeal for your house will consume me. Y'all, Jesus has an absolute commitment and passion for the house of God that consumed him. And we're meant to see his death there in view. That's the consummation that he has burned up. He's eaten up with this zeal to the point that he goes to his death on a cross. Now, does that mean that that Jesus was consumed with love for the physical temple? No. It's what the temple is in its representation. What is it about the temple that is God's house? It's not God's house because of the way it's built. God does not dwell in in, uh, houses or buildings made with human hands, the Bible tells us. For he created all things. Everything belongs to him. So what is it that his house represents? Ultimately, it represents the purity of worship and right relationship between God and sinners. That's why true worship occurred in the temple as sacrifices were made for atonement because it was a representation of how God brings sinners to himself and into his presence. That's what the temple represented, and that's what Jesus Christ was zealous for. That's what he died to produce, to produce in people true and pure worship and right relationship with God. That's what his death would accomplish. And so that's one of the reasons why you and I, we don't take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year or anywhere else for that matter. As if we had to go to a certain place in order to experience true communion with God. We don't, there is no such place for us. There is a person. 
We come by faith to the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the best news there ever was or ever could be. Now, I want to caution us, even as we talk about the preciousness of faith. Just as John, I think, wants to caution us as this chapter ends, there's something that happens here that we, we need to attend to. Uh, this account, I, I thought about ending the, the sermon right there. Um, but I think we're meant to see the end of chapter 2 as uh, an important connection to the rest of the story. Uh, the ultimate goal, as John writes his gospel, he's told us this. His ultimate goal is belief. He's written this gospel. He's recorded Jesus' signs so that everyone who believes, so that everyone who reads this book might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we may have life in his name. Right. It's a very clear and wonderful goal. But I want you to notice how this chapter ends. In verse 23, Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name as they observed his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all people and because he did not need anyone to testify about mankind, for he himself knew what was in mankind. Now, there are details here that John simply does not give us. Jesus was performing signs while he was in Jerusalem, we don't know exactly what he was doing. What kinds of signs and miracles was Jesus performing? Details we don't get. Clearly, whatever miraculous things Jesus was doing captured the attention of the people because many believed in his name as they observed his signs. And y'all, that would seem like the perfect place to end the chapter. We've just had an abrasive experience, the cleansing of the temple, the challenging of Jesus' authority. What a wonderful note of celebration it would have been if we could have ended in verse 23. Many believed in him as they saw his signs, period. But Jesus, verse 24, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all people. The people appear to be trusting Jesus, but Jesus will not entrust himself to them. Uh, again, John doesn't tell us what specifically was deficient or inadequate about their belief. We don't know. Perhaps we get a clue. There might be a clue that the people believed as they were observing Jesus' signs. It's, it's possible that their belief was merely the admiration of power. And Jesus would, would rebuke people at times about this. We see it in John chapter 6. There were people who would follow Jesus and believe in him uh, simply because he was a miracle worker and they wanted to benefit from his miracles. Um, but y'all, John's focus here at the end is not so much about the people as it is about Jesus. Uh, we get yet another expression here of Jesus being the very person of God, and, and it should hit us like a ton of bricks. Y'all, there is one person 
in existence who has the power to search the hearts of others. Only one person can do that. God alone. And here we have Jesus, the Son of God, as he makes his way through the great crowds assembled in Jerusalem, and he knows precisely what is in the heart of every last one of them. It's an amazing thing. And it leads, at least for us, to, very, to three very brief applications as we close, okay? Um, first, we should see this, we should see the omniscience of Jesus, the heart-knowing of Jesus, as a cause for deeper worship. It may at one level cause fear and anxiety for us to know that Jesus knows my heart that expressly, okay? But ultimately, it's meant to lead us to worship. Y'all, we don't gather on Sundays to discuss the life of a great man. We don't, we're not here to learn the ways of a great teacher. We're here to worship the Son of God who knows us both inside and out. We worship a God who knows the numbers of hairs on your head just as he knows all the hidden secrets of your heart. And y'all, the good news of that is that Jesus doesn't just know about us in the sense that he has the information, but he knows us. And we're able to know him by faith. Y'all, Jesus, knowing everything about you, knowing me at my very worst, loved me, he loved you, and he gave himself up for us. So ultimately, Jesus' knowing of us should not lead us to terror, but to greater worship. He knew how sinful we, are, we were, he came to earth and laid down his life anyway. Secondly, we ought to be more mindful of what this scripture says for our own sake. Jesus needed no one to testify to him about mankind because he knew what was in man. Y'all, as human beings, we are prone to put our trust and give our allegiance to people rather than God. It's a constant temptation for us that if someone is powerful or rich or if they have a measure of celebrity, if a person is higher up on the ladder than me, or if I think they can open up doors for me, or if that person will care about me and love me, then it's so very easy for us to entrust ourselves entirely to people rather than, ultimately, to God. And y'all, we can say it all day long. We know the truth about people, that everybody, even the very best of people, are deeply flawed, and ultimately they fall short. But the temptation still exists. And so we need a reminder, a refresher of what it tells us here in John 2, but it says all over the scripture, we are not meant to trust in ourselves or ultimately in anyone else. We can trust people, of course, but we don't trust in them because our souls are meant to trust truly, ultimately, only in God, who is trustworthy and eternally perfect. We ought to know what's in man also. and It ought to drive us deeper in trust of the Lord. And then lastly, a scripture like this, it should encourage us 
to examine our own faith. Not in a paranoid kind of way. I'm not, I'm not trying to create unnecessary doubt in us, and I don't think John wants to either. But in an honest way to ask ourselves, do I believe in Jesus from the heart? Do I believe in Jesus from the heart? And we might say, well, what other way is there to believe in him? There are all sorts of ways to come to Jesus in the abstract. And for us, it may be that I was raised up in church, and so I make an assumption about a relationship with Jesus, or I grew up around other Christians. It's what I've just always been around. It's what I've always known, and so I've assumed it about myself. I consider myself a good person, and ultimately that's what God wants me to be, and so we ought to be good, me and God. Uh, maybe I come to church or I, or I, I spend time you know, I make myself religious because ultimately I'm looking for something other than God, and God is the means to that end. If I will do what God wants me to do, then God will give me what I want. And that sounds malicious, perhaps. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just ignorance that we think that's how religion works. I'll do my part, and God will give me what I enjoy. But y'all, none of that expresses genuine faith. Now, salvation does not come to us through the extracurriculars that I just mentioned. Salvation comes when we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. Romans 10. And so, y'all, I, I want to call us always to examine our faith. It's a very healthy thing to do. It's not, it's not something we ought to do every day. It's certainly not something we should do in order to doubt our faith and always live in anxiety and uncertainty. That is not God's will. But to look into my heart, am I trusting Jesus from the heart here? And I want to give you good news. That for those who, who if we have true and sincere faith in Christ, he does entrust himself to us. What we see at the end of chapter 2 is not what we get when our faith is true, Jesus does entrust himself. He doesn't keep his distance. No, by his own promise, Jesus says, I will abide in you and you in me. I will be the good shepherd to the sheep and they will know my voice and I know them and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Jesus joyfully entrusts himself to us. And so it should be for us a, a, a reflection of our joy to ask myself if I trust Jesus from the heart. And that the affirmation of that, that question, the yes of that question, ought to drive me to greater worship too. That Jesus has not kept his distance from those who've trusted him. Y'all, I want us to thank the Lord together for the grace and the glory that we've seen this morning. Abrasive as the temple cleansing was, it was an act of grace. Jesus was pursuing the righteousness of God and the grace of God, in that, and, and even in his righteous anger. And there is grace when Jesus calls us to genuine faith, not to be impressed with him, not to hang around him, not even only merely to follow after him, but to know him, by trusting his grace freely given to us. It's everywhere we look, and we're allowed to walk in it, walking in the grace 
that Jesus Christ has delighted to give us. Let's thank him for it as we pray this morning. Father, thank you this morning. Thank you so much. (laughs) That what we see in Jesus Christ is a true reflection of his own heart and certainly your heart. That where there is injustice, where, where true spiritual reality is perverted and turned into something else, it makes you mad. And Father, I, I thank you for that. And I pray that we would rejoice in that. That Lord, you are not impressed that you are not um, easily duped, that what was happening in the temple uh, was not business as usual, so turned a blind eye, but that your desire, your, your absolute commitment to purity of worship, to the inclusion of the outsider, to justice, and goodness, that all of that, Lord, is so near to your heart that Jesus Christ would turn the tables over to express it. Thank you for that. And, and Lord, help us to see that that, um, that kind of zeal, that consuming zeal, was ultimately shown us in the cross. That Jesus didn't come to just reform our ways of worship. But Jesus came to be our object of worship. By saving us through his death and resurrection. And Lord, let our faith in response to Christ be absolutely sincere. And let our love for Jesus grow and grow all the more. As he calls us into communion with himself. Lord, thank you that what the temple represented, Jesus has fulfilled, and we may now come to him and him alone. We praise you for that reality in which we now live by faith in Christ's awesome name. Amen.